Owlcast, the official podcast of ACS Athens. Listen to the exciting story of the American Community Schools of Athens. Check out what drives all the members of our international community of learners as we create the education of the future. Here's John Papadakis. What kind of epiphany does someone experience before becoming a teacher? How does an optician from adjusting frames ends up adjusting brains? Why it's important to have a balanced literacy classroom? The answers to these profound questions we attempt to find today with Sophia Tsinakis, Literacy Coordinator at ACS Athens. A native of Houston, Texas, Ms. Tsinakis holds a Bachelor of Science in Psychology with a minor in Art Therapy from Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She has earned a Master's in Elementary Education and a K-12 English Language Learners Endorsement at Peabody College of Vanderbilt University. While teaching in Nashville, Tennessee, she was a finalist for the Teacher of the Year Award, recognized as a literacy leader by the District Director of Literacy, was interviewed and observed by the National Public Radio program MindShift, and one of her guided reading lessons was filmed by the district as an example of exemplary reading instruction. Sophia Tsinakis arrived at ACS Athens in 2018 and transitioned in her capacity as literacy coordinator in 2020, through which she facilitates the development of an ongoing collaborative literacy learning culture that aligns reading and writing curriculums. With Ms. Tsinakis today, we discuss the vision of literacy in the elementary school of the late Steve Medeiros, growing into innovation through professional development, building a balanced literacy classroom, being a mentor, collaborator, and a coach at the same time, life in the digital realm and how it affects learning, the emerging trends in literacy, teaching poetry, and use of graphic novels, reading critically and making sense of online content, sustainable development goals and literacy, and balance in a teacher's personal life and how that affects teaching. You have been a part of the ACS Athens community of educators since 2018. Yes. What path did you follow that led you to our classrooms? Oh, um, that is a great question. And it's not a binary answer. It's kind of a diverse path that got I don't have any binary answers <laughs> or questions. But it's not. Well, let's see. Like, how did I get here originally? Like, how I came? Like, why I made my choice? You can talk about that or you can say what uh, kind of studies you had that uh, prepared you for this position. Or There's so much that got brought me here. But okay, okay. I'll say that um, my journey. So I did my undergraduate degree is in, from Lesley University. It was a psychology degree with an emphasis in art therapy. And my intention was to work with children in a therapeutic setting. I deviated from that, which I can tell you more about that, which brought many skills to my life, um, managerial skills and love for science, actually. How much of a deviation? Quite a deviation. So we can circle back or I can jump right in. But what happened was I fell in love with teaching later, after my degree, after my deviation, and um, 
how can I say it? I I think generally I'm quite a passionate person and I was in a different field, a different profession and I loved it, but I didn't have that spark that I had the moment I saw myself helping a student learn how to read a word. And it was just by accident. It was with a friend of mine. Um, did you he, go letter by letter or did you do phonics? It was just like he was just stretching out the word. I wasn't even a teacher yet. He was just stretching out the word. And I was with a friend and we we was with her son. And I felt this kind of charge of, oh my gosh, I want to be a teacher. So I applied to uh, the Peabody College program with Vanderbilt University, the Master's of Education program. And I got in and my love for teaching deepened in learning the pedagogy and research around instructional practices in all content areas. Great program, really rigorous. I definitely learned perseverance. Was there a time you wondered whether this is the best thing for you or you knew from the beginning that this is what you're meant for? I think that I did have a lot of doubts because the program was really rigorous and I was required to read a lot, understand a lot of theory, produce a lot of papers, student teach from the, from the get, interact in professional settings. There was definitely a lot of doubt, but I had my advisor, Dr. Kathy Gonski, who I've continued working with quite closely. Uh, she was a luminary in my life. She, she said, you know, I've seen you teach in your practicum setting and you've got it. You've got what it takes. And that helped me believe in myself, not just as a teacher, but as a human in a way that I'd never had before. So it pushed me forward. Um, Did you always know you wanted to be an educator? No, I didn't. I wasn't. I mean, I was a, a licensed optician for many years. Yeah. In like a beautiful boutique in, on the Oakland-Berkeley border. And I loved it. And I managed a store. Actually, I was the general manager of a company. And I apprenticed under my boss. And he taught me how to actually make eyeglasses, like the lenses, grind the lenses and check the optics. And... um how to fit frames to faces, but also how to adjust frames to faces, which is very difficult. And I definitely learned perseverance there because I failed a lot in adjusting frames. So now you're adjusting brains to people. <laughs> no, I'm not doing any adjusting. But I guess what I'm saying is that like my path, you know, all these skills, I think sometimes we think about things of like careers in this binary way, which as I said, but all the skills that you gain along the way help you help bring a diverse background into your, into your current profession. And so when I moved into teaching, all of those skills that I gained, and also I was working in Oakland, Berkeley. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the East Bay, California. This was 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was this area where you have this border where you have Berkeley, which was very elite. And then you had Oakland, which now is quite elite, but it wasn't so much so. So you had people from all walks of life coming in. So what did that do? That helped me learn how to differentiate and exactly and how to get along with people from all over the, from all different walks of life and really connect with them, which is what I definitely believe. That's a skill I brought into my 
my teaching and I hope into my current role. Um, as far as like ACS, I've deviated so much there. I, um, Steve Medeiros recruited me and we had several conversations for several years. Where did you meet Steve Medeiros? You know, I was, I was thinking about the, uh, the, the other day and I don't quite remember. I just remember the first time I met him, it was online. It was on Skype. Um, was it through the teacher's fair? No, you know what? I think what it was, was I was in Nashville. I was at a great innovative school where I was started my teaching practice. And I think after my first year, I reached out to ACS and I said, eventually, because I knew I wanted to teach internationally eventually. I knew for sure. I first wanted to spend some time there at the school I was at because I was learning a lot from my literacy coach. I was doing a lot of work within the district. I was doing some active research with Dr. Kathy Gonski, and I ended up writing, contributing to her current book. So there was a lot happening, but I knew I wanted to go international and I knew I wanted to give back to my roots, my Greek roots, where my father has come from. So you're a second generation Greek American? Yes. Yeah, so I was born in the United States. Yes. And my father was born here. And that's a whole other wonderful story. About well, we'll get to it at some point. <laughs> but what happened was, I believe, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, I wish we could ask him, but I believe I sent a letter to him and I said, I know I eventually want to go, I want to work in an international school. I would like to be at ACS Athens. I've read the mission. I, I really like what's happening there. Um, not ready yet, but I would love to start a conversation. And so we did. And it was talking on Skype, time difference. It wasn't even that he was, we were doing any, it was just a conversation about reading and writing. And this is the kind of professional I hope to be one day, this consummate professional. I mean, he, the passion and the directness and the understanding of the nuts and bolts of being in the classroom, but also being a leader in a school, an innovative school. So um, we started the conversation and he offered me a teaching position several times and it just wasn't quite right because I didn't feel ready to leave. And um, eventually it felt very right. And there's another great story in between there, but I'll, I'll just keep going. Uh, he, he, he offered me the role and, and, and he, the teaching job, and I wish I had had time to, to work with him. He he was he had a vision for literacy in the elementary school that we talked about in my final interview before I came on board. And I remember it. And it's still like a guiding force mm -hmm. for me in my current mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. Well, you're forcing me to my next question because <laughs> I, I, I wanted to ask you about the public elementary school you came from. Yes. Um, you said it, it was innovative. It was. What kind of practices were, you know, made it innovative from the ones that you were involved in. Um, how important is innovation in a set or standard curriculum, if we're going to go a little bit more deep into it? And did you see any effect in the daily learning of the students? Yes, 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 and yes. Um, well, so I entered a school that was in East Nashville, which again is like a very interesting community because it was a community that was of a lower socioeconomic status, but then there was an infiltration of, it was being gentrified, quite frankly. And so there was an infiltration of many kids that came from homes of musicians, famous musicians. So for example, in one of my classrooms, I had Taylor Swift's like drummer, right? And so 
that was normal practice. But then we also had kids coming in from Central and South America. So we had a very huge ELL population. So we had a real mix in our school. And the school had this had a strong belief around balanced literacy practices. And to have a balanced literacy classroom, you really have to help your teachers to see their day in a very dimensional way. So each day, so you have a you have a schedule, but then each day you may have different components of your literacy practice plugged into your schedule. And it requires very flexible thinking and deeper understanding of pedagogy and research to then be able to translate that into the classroom with your teaching. So you so basically the idea where we were innovative is that our teachers we were asked to do a lot of professional development. And like our school here, we were reading a lot. We were having a lot of like book clubs around the teacher resource books. We were modeling each other's classrooms. We were videotaping. We were we were doing a lot and all of this helped us grow our practices very quickly. And we were also doing a lot of co-teaching and co-planning. How about here? You came here Same. as a first yeah. first grader. A first, first grade teacher. First grade teacher. There is a part of me that is a first grader. <laughs> and a fifth gra uh, grade teacher. And then teacher. I moved into fifth grade, yeah. So how did the innovative practices found uh, fertile ground in your daily teaching? Same. I mean, Same I think, yeah, I, I came into a school that was was laying the foundations of having a balanced literacy classroom. And I could see that from from the very beginning. They had the the reading and writing curriculum that's that comes out of the Teachers College of Columbia University. And they also were doing really nice things within their daily practices. And I could see that as I was moving around the classrooms. Because in my first year, um, Steve Medeiros and Sophia Moros asked me to to do a bit of work within the classrooms as well. Um, so it was the same, it was the same ideas. I think that what's happened in the last few years is that we've moved ourselves more into the balanced literacy uh, structure. Mm -hmm. Just to clarify, Steve Medeiros was then the Dean of Academics. He, he, he was. Okay, and Sofia Moros is our current is our current principal, principal. In the elementary yes, school. Yes. So right now you are the literacy coordinator yes. in the school. What, For the elementary school. To the elementary school. What, yes. what does that mean? How does your activity affect everyday teaching and learning for our students? Well, just like with teachers, I mean, teachers wear so many hats. Um, it's hats that not everyone is maybe aware of unless you're on the front lines of, of, of teaching. It's similar. I, I wear a lot of different hats. So my hats include structuring the PJ through fifth grade literacy curriculum to also supporting literacy practices, foundational practices and growth of our teachers through internal professional development and also through coaching in classrooms. Do um, you also suggest outside professional development for our teachers? Or is it something that is an internal process or both? I think I do. I would like to move in that direction. I think it needs to be timed correctly. Mm -hmm. Right now, our teachers are taking on a lot. And even as like a division team, we mm -hmm. have um, the elementary school division team and have we are continuing to revise the scope and sequences that are vertically aligned across all, all from PJ all the way through fifth grade. So there's been a lot that has, has elevated their teaching practices. Um, 
I do give them an external professional development, so to speak, and that I'm always is that I'm reading the the International Reading Association journal called The Reading Teacher. And through there, there's some remarkable articles that as teachers tell me areas of interest, I do my best to find an article that supports that area of interest and offer it to them. And they're from literacy experts from around the world mm -hmm. that are writing these articles. Has there been a situation that you had to convince an educator in a classroom of the merits of the literacy program? Has it always been smooth sailing in the process of adoption of the program, school-wide or in the elementary? I don't want to convince anyone. I, I, I really believe in the work that our teachers are doing within our school and across the world. Would you I, consider yourself a mentor regarding literacy, a coach? So I'm trying to figure out what is your role in the classroom activity as you go in or you when you discuss with teachers? I think that, oh, this is a, I love this question. This is a good question. I think that I, like, I'm wearing different, different hats. So do I consider myself a mentor in some situations? Do I set or consider myself a coach? Yes. Do I consider myself a collaborator with the teachers? Yes. Do I work alongside them? Yes. Do at times I need to guide and lead? Yes. Do at times do I need to step back and let them shine and guide and lead? Yes. So um, do at times I need to say, this is how we need to try this because of X, Y, Z research and we're going to try or, it this way. And we might set, need, right? right. We may need to do some modifications later. Yes. Um, that's all part of it. Do you look up to someone in your capacity as a literacy coordinator? Do you look up to someone who has done it before and you're following footsteps? Like someone in my life that... Yeah, yeah from I your would... life or from books that you've read or... Yeah, well, yes and yes. Yes and yes. So my own literacy coach in my previous experience, I admire her greatly. Not only was she a teacher of great skill and capacity and confidence. She also was a teacher that helped to build their students level of learning in this, like at a place where they could, she was, she was a master at, and I admired, she was a master at in a whole group lesson, which you have 20 kids. She was differentiating throughout the whole lesson. I really admired that. And that it takes a lot of knowledge to then translate to your instructional practice. As a coach, what she did for me is she helped me realize my own talents and my own capacity, my own effectiveness. And as a coach, she also was at times someone that was very direct and said to us, you know, this is how we're going to do it. And this is why we need to do it this way. She also was somebody that when I showed interest in moving into professional development for colleagues, she brought me on board. And I mean, I was in my first year of teaching. I was, you know, I was brand new to the profession and I was saying, I want to try this. And she lifted me up and she said, okay. And okay. In the beginning was a lot of handholding, but she taught me how to develop professional development mm -hmm. sessions. She taught me how to deliver and we did them in tandem. We did them together. And then eventually I moved on in my own way. So I do admire her. Um, she's also become a very close friend and someone that even today, when something comes up in my current role as the literacy coordinator coach for the elementary school, 
I'll call her and say, what do you think? I'm trying to figure this out. Part of the reason I love my role is that I'm in the classrooms with the teachers as much as I can be. So I remember the nuts and bolts of being on the in the classroom with the kids on the floor, working alongside the kids, the teachers. Just this morning, I was in second grade. Now I'm going to go teach poetry in fifth. Um, but I also enjoy my role because on the other side, I, I help to guide and lead. And that's something that I saw my close friend and previous literacy coach do so eloquently. And I hope that as time goes on, I can, I can strive for that. You are listening to The Owlcast, the official podcast of ACS Athens. You have to agree that every generation has different codes of communication, different ways of learning to read and write. Yes. Sometimes that's how we see the generation gap. Sure. By how well we understand the young people. Agreed. Does our children's digital life, especially nowadays, create a more or less conducive foundation for literacy? How do you think their involvement with social media and digital classrooms affect their learning? I think it's all part of it. I think that, you know, it's always evolving. I mean, our instructional practices need to always evolve. So what worked even, let's say, two years ago in my classroom and how I'm going to teach a fifth grade unit about writing argumentative essays would be different now. It would it would be different now. Um, you know, there was a lot of research after the lockdowns across the world of around the idea that kids their writing process now was done with a computer mm-hmm. versus the writing process on with a paper and a writing utensil. Um, and there was there was a lot of conversation around, oh my gosh, they can no longer write. And so what my opinion about that, my humble opinion is, no, they can. It's just that instead of saying the only way to write is with paper and pencil, we have to say, there's two ways we need to help our kids right now. We need to show them the writing process, which is going to be different with a paper and pencil, your revision's gonna be different. You're gonna go back, you're gonna cross out, you're gonna maybe have post-its to show where you're gonna add on. Your the way that you structure it is is it's gonna have a different w- rhythm. You're gonna reread it differently. Where on computer, it's the same writing process of drafting, revising, editing, but it's gonna it's gonna look different. You're gonna highlight, you're gonna copy paste, you're gonna move it down. So the the brain has to be able to learn both skills. If we really want our kids to be ready. For the world, Mm -hmm. we have to help them learn how to, I'm using writing as an example, write in both ways, in in both fashions. You can also take that to social media. So there's a really, there's two big things that are coming out right now in the world of literacy across the world. And that's the teaching of poetry. And that's the, in, in the use of graphic novels. Graphic novels are incredible because why are they incredible? They're not comics. What graphic novels allow us to do is it allows us to, as a reader, to take a text, but also take an image and synthesize and read across and synthesize in a particular manner to understand the meaning of the text. And it can be around very complex issues like the Civil War, for example. What the research has shown us is that if we teach our children how to read graphic novels, they take that knowledge and it can help them in reading information on a screen. 
and synthesizing information on a screen. It can also help them with reading data, reading charts, reading pie graphs, reading bar graphs. All of that comes together. And moreover, in teaching literacy and teaching how to read critically, really critically, that helps us move into students reading online and knowing, wait, does this make sense? Wait, does this connect to what? I-? So really reading critically and, and um, which is very important in the digital age, as you know, because mm-hmm. this is your area of expertise. So you really l- see a shift in literacy paradigms from what you're telling me. I guess I see that they're evolving. They're evolving. I'm not sure if it's a shift or if it's an involvement and like keeping up. Well, like, I guess it's like, I see it. This is the same meaning. Yeah. I mean, you're shifting. You're going to a different level. You're evolving. But there is a change. There's a change, but there's also like there's also constants. Like mm-hmm. there's certain constants. Like right. I, for example, like if I'm going to teach interactive writing, it's an instructional practice in which you're sharing, quote, the pen with a student. Maybe in the past, we would have just used a marker and a whiteboard. Now, maybe we're going to use the student's going to come up and they're going to write a word using the keyboard, or maybe they're going to use the smart board. I mean, there's so many different things you can do there. Or in the past, we were doing, which we're still doing, interactive read-alouds, where you're using books and you're teaching comprehension skills through read-alouds, but interactive read-alouds, where if you're really choosing, I'm going to work on prediction where students are using the text and the stories, mm-hmm. the text and the storyline, how it's evolving and the illustrations to predict what's going to happen next. But that same concept, that same idea of comprehension and prediction is now being shifted over to video allows, where you're taking video allows. And I've tried this in a fifth grade classroom last year where you're taking video allows, you're taking a short flick maybe five minutes, and maybe without words even. And it has a storyline where the students have to still predict at a certain point if you stop the video. Okay, so this is happening and this is happening. That's so what, interesting. Isn't it? So it's like I have this actual image of like things are just kind of running alongside each other. And if you have your like foundations and then it's thinking, okay, how I have my foundational beliefs around literacy instruction or methodology and research and 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 a critical eye to how it's all taught. But then there's no reason that that doesn't link to technology. Mm-hmm. It's just adding on another tool. It's just adding on another piece, another component. So this begs the question, how does literacy affect children's critical thinking? Everything. I mean, it undergrids everything. If you teach a student how to read a text critically, a text, a book, uh, a chapter book, uh, critically, really critically. So what did I just learn? What's going on with the character? From from the age of, of JK, when they're when they're the teachers are doing the reading for the students into kindergarten, where the students are starting to read, and all the way up to the fifth, imagine how that undergrids them then reading a contextual math word problem. Mm-hmm. They need to read it critically. They have to learn those skills. Um, so literacy undergrids everything. As a school, we have been very involved in promoting sustainability through the adoption mm. in our curriculum of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. How have you and your colleagues embraced these goals through the scope of the literacy curriculum? Yes. So in my year in uh, in fifth grade, one year I was in fifth grade, my curriculum partner was Laura Colinzas, and she and I worked really closely to integrate the SDGs into our curriculum. 
we were not the only team that did that. All the I would say all the other grade levels were doing it as well. And I think an easy way to like think about it is, for example, one genre that we teach in writing is opinion writing or in fifth grade argument writing. It's very easy to ask the students to research about a sustainable goal, uh, gender equality, to research it, which we've, we're teaching them in reading, by the way, and then write about it and their opinion about it and then taking it into advocacy. The fifth grade team has taken it much further now. They're, they're doing some, some really deep integration of the SDGs. Um, in third grade, there's been some nice integration of the SDGs. And even thinking about our mission of improving life and living on the planet, mm -hmm. they've integrated that into their writing units. Yes. Well, it, it's striking that every one of the SDGs, they involve, first of all, human rights. Yes. And literacy is up there on the top as one of the SDGs. What is striking to me is that it is so easy to go into a conversation with a student mm. for either one of the 17 goals. I mean, it strikes a chord with each one of the students, no matter their age. If you wanna to go to the elementary school and talk about the environment, if you go to the high school, like the other day, we had a discussion about human rights with the chairperson of the Human Rights Committee of the UN, and the kids were right there asking questions about each one of the SDGs. Yeah. So I guess this is something that is going to continue and literacy is up there as a top priority. And um, education for all, right? Education yeah. for all, literacy right. for all, mm -hmm. right? Well, based on that concept, there is a parent who is visiting the elementary school for their elementary aged child that has been in a different school uh, system, not an American, not even English speaking. Mm. There is a natural apprehension or anxiety yes. related to changing schools, changing location, language, friends, right? Yeah. How would you approach this family? How would you make them at ease about the success of this transition? Which grade level, for example? I don't know. Does it Any matter? Grade? I think it does. Okay. Because if they're a younger student, they're also going to be worried just about learning the concept of school. What does school mean? If they're an upper elementary student, they might be concerned about learning a new way, a new concept of school. I think I would approach it. If I was given the opportunity to meet this parent, I would probably, again, I know we have COVID regulations, but I would probably take them into different classrooms and not just- As it has been the practice up to before yeah. the pandemic. Yes. Yes. Before the pandemic. Right. So that's, that's probably how I would approach it is, hey, let's come in and let's go see what's going on in kindergarten. Let's go walk in there. Oh, let's pop over to fifth. Okay, let's go over to third. Do you see the active, do you see the engagement? Do you see the curiosity? Do you see the excitement? Do you see the perseverance that our students have? Do you notice the teachers are lifting up all of the students? It's about the kids. And then I would probably take them somewhere they felt comfortable. And I would sit down and I would talk to them about they would ask me, let's say, questions about what their student is going to, how they're going to learn reading and like whether they're going to be learning and reading and writing that year in mm -hmm. X grade. Mm -hmm. And then I would probably talk them through the specific details. Well, you'll be learning this. Developmentally, we would expect to see this. Well, would, I guess my question is for those students that do not have the language skills to go deep into the literacy program. I mean, you have students that go through a silent phase. 
in oh, the beginning. Oh, yes, absolutely. And then you're coming in and you go deep into the literacy merits when the kid or the student uh, doesn't even have the basic skills to go into a third grade class or a second grade class. So I guess the idea is that you try to show the involvement of the whole class. Right? I would, I would. And I, and I think that also, yes, I would try to show that. I have an additional, I have an additional license in, I'm English language um, endorsed. So most of my students in my previous school, um, but there they were I guess there's a differentiation in the sense that like it's very different working with a group of students where they're learning English and English is all around them versus here we have students learning English and when they leave school, sometimes isn't English isn't all around them. So you have to understand the difference there. But my background is working with students that are in a first grade. So, for example, I was in a first grade classroom and more than half of my kids were learning English. So yes, you have the f- silent phase. And so I yes, you have where they're going to be able to they're moving through learning how like understanding their their reception of the language and then being able to produce all of that in order to help a student in the in the mainstream classroom learn how to read, how to write in English. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course we have to think about sure. do they know how to write in their in their first language? That's a, it plays a huge role because then your job as a teacher is to help them just transfer that literacy knowledge to another language. If they don't, then it's a little bit more challenging. What I wanted to say is that as, as a teacher, part of our job is differentiating for where our students are. So really meeting them where they are. And you're teaching, you may have a whole group classroom lesson, but then you're pulling a small group. Hmm where you have four learners that you're working with, or maybe you're working one-on-one with someone. And all of that does require a lot of flexibility. Something else that our school has that not all schools have is a very strong ESL, EFL program. Last year, I worked very much with them around, okay, let's align our scope and sequences of what we're doing in the general classroom to the scope and sequences of what you're doing in the ESL, EFL classrooms. So now we're very aligned. So the idea is that as students transition out of those classrooms, uh, the EFL, ESL classrooms, that they're going to be able to move right into the general classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, Which makes all the difference in, in the world for a student who's coming in. Absolutely. Outside. And so they feel part of the group and confident. And So have you read a book lately that made you rethink your practice, either reinforcing it or otherwise? Uh, I'm reading a lot of books right now. I read like four books. <laughs> four books at the same time? Yeah. One in the morning, one in the afternoon, or how, how does that go? It's just kind of based on mood. Like I'm reading a very light fiction book right now that I was given for my birthday, and then I'm reading a heavier book. I'm talking things that, I know, about your practice. Book. I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, I am reading a book right now by Colleen Cruz, I believe is her name. And the title is Risk, Fail, Mistakes, I believe. I'm probably quoting that wrong. But I've just started it. But the whole concept around it is taking care of self to be a better teacher. And what that really means and how you really do that. And I think that as a teacher, and even in this role as a coordinator and coach for the elementary school, that was something that 
I didn't do, like not nourishing self enough outside of teaching to them be a better, to them be better. And so it's a practice that I think a lot of us as, as educators, I'm sure, I mean, I'm not sure, but I imagine you're guilty of it as well, of not maintaining balance because with teaching, we give it our all. We do. It's so, it's like, it's, it's a passion. And so we give everything and then we're not balanced in our personal lives enough. And so then that affects our teaching because we don't have the same freshness or the same outside perspective. So that book I'm reading and it's pushing me to realize that I need to do better. Mitzi Nikes, thank you so much. This has been enlightening. <laughs> oh gosh, you're welcome. <laughs> You are listening to The Owlcast, the official podcast of ACS Athens. Make sure you subscribe to The Owlcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. This has been a production of the ACS Athens Media Studio.